so uh, Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he, sent, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good, my, my good servant. His master replied, Because you have been trustworthy in very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it, laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are, a, you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with, uh, with some of the interest. Then he said uh, to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to all people who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them right in front of me. Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that as we come to you today that you would be with us. I pray that you'd use me uh, in preaching your word. Help me to faithfully proclaim your word. I pray that as we listen to this parable that each one of us can think about uh, which one of the characters in the story represents us. Lord, I just pray too that uh, you would work on our hearts, Father. If there are any here who don't, do not know you, Lord, who are not following you, I pray that you'd work in their hearts too, Lord. I pray that you'd help us all to be better followers of you. We ask for these things in your name. Amen. Now, have you ever been on a long trip, a long road trip? Who's been on a long road trip? Now, I don't mean on a long road trip in Tasmania because you can't do a long road trip in Tasmania. Four hours to to Cockle Bay or whatever it's called, or Strawn, doesn't really count. But if you go to the mainland, you can go on a really long drive. There's a picture up there, of, or coming up, of me on a really long drive. I remember once I drove from Cairns to Perth. Has anyone driven from Cairns to Perth? You have. Well done. How long did it take you, Trevor and Sarah? Yes. It took me a week. A week, you know, and as you get close to Perth, you start to get excited. Not that Perth's somewhere to be excited about, but I shouldn't say that. But because you're getting near the end of the trip, you're getting excited. As you get closer and closer, there is this heightened sense of expectation that you are about to arrive. Your destination is almost there. And today, we are going to look at the end of a journey. Well, it's what Jesus' disciples think is the end of a journey. 
But perhaps the end is not quite as close as they think it is. Our parable today is Luke chapter 19, which Ethan just read out for us. And it is situated towards the end of Jesus' final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, for Aussies, even for Tasmanians, Jerusalem is not that far from Galilee, if you have a car. But Jesus and his disciples did not have a car. They were walking. It was a five-day journey. I checked it on Google Maps. It was a five-day journey, not including stopping, you know, extra stops. So it was a pretty epic road journey after all except it was on foot. And it was a journey with destiny. Jesus and his disciples were not just going anywhere. They weren't going to Perth or Cairns or even Launceston. They were going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Jerusalem, where the temple was. And most importantly, Jerusalem, a city full of messianic expectations. And it was all very, already very clear to many people because of Jesus' miracles and his teachings and so on that he was pretty special. Perhaps he was even the Messiah. The Messiah who would march triumphantly into Jerusalem, kick the Roman occupying army out and establish God's righteous reign plainly and clearly. And our passage today is set in Jericho, which, as you can see on the map, is the last stop before Jerusalem. In other words, they are almost there. The expectations are high. And that is why it says in verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. What this means is that they thought that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he was going to straight away kick the Romans out and bring in God's righteous rule plainly and clearly for everyone to see. Now the question is, were they right or were they wrong? Was that what Jesus was going to do? Who says yes? Who says no? Who's asleep? You're not going to put your hand up if you are, are you? Wake up. Well... They thought he was going to do that and they were sort of right. Maybe that's why most of you didn't put up your hand. Because it was going to happen, but it wasn't going to happen as quickly as they were expecting. And so Jesus tells them a parable to explain this. He starts off in verse 12 with, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, verse 12 probably sounds a bit strange to us here in Australia in the 21st century. If you want to become a king, and, you know, it takes a while to become a king these days because the queen lives a long time, but if you want to become a king, you don't go off to some distant country and then come back home. But back then, you did. Back then, Israel was at the edge of the vast Roman Empire. It was on the edge of the Roman Empire, and vassal kings ruled some of the remote Roman remote provinces. But these kings would need the Roman emperor's permission to rule. If a king died, the son of the king, or whoever the new king would be, he would need to go on a long trip to Rome and ask the Roman emperor to appoint him as king. If he was successful, he would come back with his imperial commission and rule as king. 
They didn't have emails back then. Oh, you know, hey, emperor, can you just confirm me as king? They actually had to go, and they didn't have planes or cars back then. They had to go on one of these dodgy ships, which you can see there on the bottom there, all the way to Rome and then come back. And so the nobleman who wanted to be a king had to physically undertake a long, time-consuming journey to Rome and then come back so that this process could happen. So what Jesus is basically saying in verse 12 is this. Yes, we're getting close to Jerusalem. Yes, something significant is going to happen there. But you are going to have to wait a bit, quite a bit, for the kingdom of God to appear in all its fullness. Because I, the one destined to be king, need to go away. But one day I will come back again and when I do... That's when you will see the kingdom of God come plainly and clearly for everyone to see. Now for us, we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven. And one day, he will come back again. But that day of his return for us is still in the future. What this means is that we currently live in an in-between time. We live in that time when the nobleman, the nobleman, Jesus, has gone to a distant country. He's still away, that distant country of heaven, while we wait for him to return in his glory as king. If you want to understand this parable, you need to understand that. And you also need to understand the next two verses Because the next two verses gives us two things that will happen while the king, while Jesus, is away. And two groups are mentioned here. These two things relate to two different sorts of people. The first group are the king's servants. And the second group are the king's subjects. Some of your translations say the king's citizens. Firstly, let's have a look at the king's servants. In verse 13, he tells them this. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. The nobleman was going to be away for a long time. And while he was away, he gave each of his servants a miner each. Now, a miner is not somebody who works underground looking for precious metals. Not in this context, anyway. A miner is a very large sum of money. Roughly equivalent to three months' wages. So you can work out how much you earn. So it's something like 15,000, maybe 20, maybe 10, depending on how much you earn. You've got the idea. That is, it's quite a large amount of money, but it's not an enormous amount of money. You can't go and buy a house with it, for example. Maybe a car. And then look what he tells them to do with it. He says, put this money to work until I come back. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, store up this money and keep it safe until I come back. But he says, use, he also does not say, use this money for yourself. Go and spend it on whatever you like. He doesn't say that either. But he says, put this money to work until I come back. In other words, it's not your money. It's my money, the king's money. Use it, work it, make it grow. 
That's what he said to the servants, the first group of people. Let's have a look at the second group. It says in verse 14, But his subjects, or his citizens, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. So who are these people? They are people who live in the nobleman's realm, but they are not his servants. And they do not want the nobleman to be the king. They want somebody else to be king. So they actively work against the nobleman becoming king. Now remember, this is a parable that Jesus gives about the time he will be away, which is the time that we are living in now. He has told the first group of people, his servants, that he has given them resources, time, money, talents, And they are to use those resources, not for themselves, but for his work. Secondly, there are other people, the subjects, who live on Jesus' earth, on God's earth, but who do not want Jesus to be king. While Jesus is away, before he comes back again, these people do not recognise Jesus as king. So a big question here for us is, first big question of today, which group do you belong to? Are you a servant or a subject? The first part of verse 15 tells us that the king eventually returns. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Let's now see what happens with these two groups of people when the king returns, when King Jesus returns in all his glory. First, let's see what happens to the servants. Verse 15, second half of verse 15 says, Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Wow, that's pretty good. And so the king commends him. Verse 17. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The first servant has been trustworthy, or he's been faithful with the money given to him. With that roughly $15,000, he's made ten times as much, $150,000. I wouldn't mind that. Who'd like to invest 15 grand and get 150 back? Yep. Now I know that a lot of you really aren't awake. (laughs) So that's pretty good, isn't it? And the king is happy with him. So the king gives him control of 10 cities. 10 cities is a lot more responsibility than $150,000. But the important thing to note is that the king is commended just like the next servant, as we read in verses 18 to 19. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. The king is also pleased with the second servant. Sure, he only made five times as much rather than ten times, but he's still being faithful and he's also commended. Now, let's look at the third servant. Verses 20 and 21. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. 
You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. So we know what he would answer to the survey question, that he was afraid of his master. So the third servant, the third servant is not like the other ones. He did not invest the money entrusted to him. He did not try and make it grow. Well, after all, investing is risky. Sure, it might bring great returns, but investing also brings the possibility of loss. So instead of taking the risk, he has taken the cautious option. He has hidden the money, taking good care to look after it so that it is not lost. And he's actually done a very good job at that. He returns to the king, the miner, exactly the same miner that was entrusted to him. Now you would think that the king would be happy because he'd kept his money safe. Well, let's see if he's happy or not. We've already heard it read out, so we know the answer. But we'll read it again, 22 and 23. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. (coughs) You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I would have collected it with interest? Wow. His master, the king, is not happy. He's not impressed. It wasn't good enough just to keep the money safe. He was supposed to use the money. He was supposed to grow the money. Even if he'd just put the money in the bank, this was before there was 0% interest for a deposit, of course, but even if he'd just put the money in the bank, which would not be nearly the same rate of return as the other servants got, his master would still have been happy with him, even if he'd only used it a little bit. But getting back exactly the same minor that he gave him, the king is not happy. He is so not happy that we read in the next verse what will happen to him. Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Now I don't know about you, but to me that just screams unfairness. And the crowd thinks it's unfair too. In verse 25 it says, Sir, they said, he already has ten. It does seem unfair. But Jesus replies with something unexpected in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What? How does this fit into Jesus' teaching elsewhere about how the rich should give to the poor? But here Jesus is saying to take from the poor and give to the rich. What's going on? How does this square up with helping the needy? Well, the thing is that we may need to realise that this is not a parable or teaching about the rich helping the poor. Other parts of Jesus' teaching do very clearly tell us to help the poor. So then, if this is not a parable about the rich and the poor, what then is it? To understand what it is, we need to go back and reread some of those earlier verses and see what Jesus is actually commanding these servants. So let's go back to verse 13 and have a look at the king's command to them again. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. What did he tell them to do? 
store up the money? No. He said, put this money to work until I come back. He told them to put this money to work. Use it. He did not say, keep it. He did not say, store it away and make sure you don't lose it. Rather, he said, put this money to work. That is, use it. In other words, the problem with the third servant was not that he wasn't careful with the money, because he was, but rather the problem with the third servant was that he did not obey his master. If his master had said, here's a miner, keep it safe, he would have done the right thing by keeping it safe. But that's not what he was told to do. In other words, the third servant disobeyed his master. Perhaps he didn't disobey him outwardly. It's not like he was actively working against his master. He was not like those other people who actually rebelled against his master. After all, he took a lot of care to look after his master's minor. But nevertheless, it was not what the master commanded. We don't know why he didn't do it. Maybe he didn't hear properly. Or maybe he didn't remember properly. Or maybe he didn't like what his master commanded and thought that he knew better than his master. Whichever one it was, he did not follow the nobleman's instructions, his master's instructions. Because you see, at the end of the day, it was not the servant's right to think he knew better than the master about what to do with the money because it was not the servant's money. It was the master's money. It always remained the master's money. It was just entrusted, safekeeping with the servants. But before we look further at these servants, let's now look at those people who had actively revolted against the master. Remember verse 14 says, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. These people actively worked against the nobleman. They rebelled against him and tried to stop him from becoming king. But the nobleman does become king. And right at the end of the parable, in verse 27, we find out what happens to these people. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow. That's pretty strong. It sounds kind of harsh. Until we realise that this group of people had been constantly, actively working against the king the whole time he had been away. They were in open rebellion against the king right up until he returned. And so there is only one thing the king could do to these traitors and that was to have them killed. So in this parable we actually see three groups of people. Firstly, we see the obedient servants, the first and second servants who obeyed their master. Secondly, we see a disobedient servant, the third servant, who while not in open rebellion against the master, still did not obey him. And thirdly, we see the subjects who were in open rebellion. Okay, nice story. What's all this got to do with us? Well, everything. Remember the context. 
Jesus gave this parable as he was about to enter Jerusalem. The crowd thought he was going to make the kingdom of God appear at once, straight away. In other words, they were expecting Jesus to be crowned as king the moment he walked through the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus knew that he would be king, but not yet. He knew that before he became king, he would suffer and die, that he would rise from the dead and then go on a long journey back to the Father where he would be gone for a very long time before returning one day in the future in glory. Now, of course, we do know that Jesus is king at the moment, but what we're talking about him is being evidently, plainly and clearly king for everybody to see. And the thing for us is that we are now living in that time while Jesus is away. Sure, he is present in some measure with us now through the work of God's Holy Spirit, But Jesus' return in his power is still in the future. We don't know when it will be. It could be tonight. It could be before lunchtime. It could be in a thousand years' time. Just like those servants, we do not know when Jesus is coming back. But during the time that Jesus is away, Jesus is telling us that there will be three groups of people in this world. There will be the faithful servants... Those who, are, those who say that they are his servants and obey him. Those who use the things that Jesus has given them, whether money, time, talents, other resources, and use them in the way that he has told us to use them. And we know how we should use them from reading the Bible. They are those who realise that everything they have is not really theirs. It's not my money, it's not Thomas's money, it's not my time, my talents, they're not really mine. And your money, your time, your talents are not really yours. They are God's. They are King Jesus's. The first group of people are those who call Jesus Lord and Master and who really believe it and live it out by obeying him. The second group of people are those who claim that they are Jesus's servants but who do not obey Jesus. The money, the time, the talents, the resources that Jesus has given them, they do not use these things in the way Jesus has told them to use them. Maybe, maybe they think that their money is actually their money and not God's. Or maybe they do not think that their money, their talents, their resources are God's. Maybe they do think that they're God's. But they think that they know better than God how to use them. Instead of looking to God's word to see what God wants, they look elsewhere or make up their own things, or reinterpret God's words. They change God's commands to suit themselves. Whether it's white American Christians of the 1800s who reinterpreted the Bible to justify slavery, or modern liberal Christians, or some of them, who reinterpret the Bible to justify homosexuality, or some modern so-called conservative Christians who reinterpret the Bible to justifying ignoring the oppressed, such as refugees, oppressed minorities, or other poor people. Whatever it is, it's so easy for us to do it. We must be people who not only say we are Jesus' servants, but take his instructions, all of his instructions, seriously, and don't change them. And that's why reading and studying the Bible are so important. Because that's where we find God's instructions to us in this book here. 
Then there is a third group, those who actively rebel against Jesus, those who do not claim that they follow Jesus and who either follow some other god, some other king or no god at all. So we could neatly sum up these three groups as follows. The first group are Christians who obey Jesus. The second group are Christians who do not obey Jesus. And the third group are non-Christians. And the big question for us today, another big question, is which group are you in? Are you a Christian who obeys Jesus? Or are you a Christian who does not obey Jesus? Or are you a non-Christian who does not even pretend to obey Jesus? Which group you are in will affect your eternal destiny. Now, it's fairly obvious that the first group, the obeying Christians, will be commended by Jesus when he returns. They will inherit eternal life. Hallelujah! Who says hallelujah? Great, you're awake. And it's also fairly obvious that the third group, people who do not even pretend to follow Jesus, will be condemned. And we know that that means to suffer in hell for eternity. If you're here today and you think you might be in that third group, I will talk a little bit more about that group at the end. But just as a spoiler alert, you do not have to stay in that third group. But now, what about the second group? Those who say that they are Christians but do not do what Jesus says, who do not obey him, obey him. What happens to them? You know, there are many people who say that to be saved, all you need to do is confess Jesus as Saviour. But you do not really need to confess Jesus as Lord. Sure, the really spiritual Christians will confess Jesus as Lord also, but it's not necessary in order to be saved. And they look at this parable and they see that the serious Christians are the first and second servants. They will be rewarded. But the Christians who confess Jesus as Saviour but do not make him Lord, who do not really follow him or do what he says, they're still saved. They just don't get all the goodies in heaven that the really spiritual ones get. After all, the third servant loses his minor, but he is still the king's servant. He's still saved. But is he really? Is he really? Let's have a closer look at the king's judgment of the second servant. In verse 22, Jesus calls the third servant, have a look there in the Bibles, at the adjective in front of servant. Wicked servant. This is not just a bad servant or a lazy servant. No, it is strong language. The word is wicked, or as some translations have it, evil servant. Yes, that is what the Greek here means. It is a strong word that means wicked or evil. The third servant is actually evil. And in verse 26, Jesus says, he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. That is, everything the third servant has, even the little bit left, will be taken away. 
Now, if that's not clear enough, if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a very similar parable to this one, the parable of the talents. And in this parable, the condemnation is the same, except there's an extra verse about what Jesus says to the third servant in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, where it says, And throw that worthless servant outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, my friends, is the same punishment as those enemies of Jesus who actively rebelled against him. In other words, there are not three groups of people. There are actually only two groups of people in this parable. The first group are those who are Jesus' servants and who obey him. When Jesus returns, he will reward them. The second group are those who are not Jesus' servants and who do not obey him. They can either be those who do not call themselves Christians at all and are in active rebellion against him, but they can also be those who call themselves Christians, who say with their mouths that they follow Jesus, but with their actions they do not follow Jesus because they disobey him. Whichever one it is, when Jesus returns, they will be punished. But now perhaps you are saying, what about grace? Surely we are not saved by our works, by what we do. Didn't we learn last week about the Pharisee who thought he was saved by his works, but he was not? And the tax collector, the sinner, who was saved by his humble repentance and the mercy of God. Yes, we are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's gift to us, his free gift of salvation through what Jesus did on the cross. There is nothing that we can do to earn our way to God. The servants who obeyed the master did not earn their way to God. They were the master's servants before he went away. They did not become his servants by obeying him. But when they did obey him, it showed, it demonstrated that they trusted the master. It showed that they took him and his commands seriously. Whereas the second servant showed that he did not trust his master. His master told him to do one thing, but he did another. His master told him to put the money to work, but the third servant did not trust his master to take the risk and put the money to work. In a total, total lack of trust, in a total lack of belief, in a total lack of obedience to his master, he changed his master's instructions and hid the money. The second servant showed by his actions that he was not really the king's servant after all. You see, we are saved by grace. But Jesus says it time and time again that to be a Christian means following Jesus. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit and he gives us the power to obey him. Being a Christian means obeying Jesus. Now, of course, none of us obeys Jesus perfectly. Sin still works in our lives. We're not perfect, but if we are really, truly following Jesus, we know that we're not perfect. And if we're really, truly saved, the desire of our heart is to obey Jesus. Our desire is to read the Bible which is where we find out our king's instructions. 
Our desire is to follow his commands as best we can with the help of the Spirit in us. And when we fail, instead of trying to self-justify ourselves like the third servant did, we repent. We turn from our wrongdoing and we ask God once again to forgive us. And the wonderful promise of the parable is that if we are like the first and second servant, a faithful servant of Christ, on that day when he returns, he will say to us, Well done, my good servant. And now a few words for those in the second group. Either for those here today who do not call yourselves Christians or for those who do call yourself a Christian but you do not really take the Bible, God's commands for your life seriously. My plea for you is, you can change. The setting of this parable is Jesus approaching Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. Why did he have to die? He died in our place as a sacrifice for our wrongdoing. He died in our place to take the punishment for our rebellion against God. After three days, he rose again. He conquered death and opened up the way to eternal life. He did this for those people who will turn away from doing things their own way and who will turn to Jesus and turn to doing things his way. He did that for those who will say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you from now on. I'm going to do my best with your help to do what you tell me to do, to do what you say. And if you do that because of what Jesus did on the cross, God will forgive you of your wrongdoing and your rebellion against Jesus and God will also give you his Holy Spirit to give you a new start. And if you are in that second group of people today, whether you are someone who does not call themselves a Christian or someone who does, but who's really only pretending, then I urge you, repent. Do a U-turn in your life. Come to Jesus. Trust him and become like the first and second servants, true servants of the true and living God, so that when Jesus returns, he too will say to you, well done, my good servant. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this parable. Like many of your parables, when we look at it closely, we realise that the message is hard-hitting. Lord, we realise that none of us can follow you perfectly, but we do know that for those who follow you and say who follow you, we need to have a desire, a willingness, and try with the help of your Holy Spirit to obey your commands as best we can. Lord, I pray for any who are here today who have been ignoring God's commands, whether they say they're a Christian or not. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. And I pray for all of us that you would help us to follow you better, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you and that we can look forward to that day when you return and you will say, well done good and faithful servant. Amen.